Welcome to the summer edition of Published or Not on 3CR, 8.55am online and digital. I'm Ewan Mitchell and for the next half hour I'll be talking books and publishing with our guest authors for the week. So whether you're relaxing on holiday or keeping the country running, I hope you enjoy Published or Not. Good morning, Ewan. How are you? Welcome back, David McLean. Thank you very much. I haven't heard that promo before. Oh, that is the first time. Well, of course, some of us have been here hard at work in the seat, keeping it warm. For are, you are you insinuating I haven't been hard at work reading over my break? Well, of course, you've been hard at work reading, particularly the guests we've got coming up today. But I can't believe already mid-January, we've got the Australian Open underway, a scorcher forecast outside and a scorcher of an interview in here this morning. Thank heaven the air conditioner's working. <laughs> yeah. Now, there are few writers in Australia with the depth and breadth of experience in writing professionally than our guest for today. He has won not one but two Walkley Awards for journalism, has written speeches for a Prime Minister, and is now writing his own books with Melbourne University Press. Welcome to Published or Not, James Button. Hi, Ewan. Hi, David. It's great to be here. Oh, good. Now, you've got a fantastic strapline or quote on the front of your book, Speechless, which we're going to pull apart. It did come out in 2012, a revised edition in 2013 but that was for the readers we have a lot of writers who listen to publish or not and as bob ellis the late and controversial writer bob ellis has said on the front cover few more searching books on our civil processes our lawmaking our public discourse this is a quiet masterpiece to be savored now in terms of the writing process i also think it's a masterpiece quietly you've got in there some excellent uh, insights into the processes of writing. So if we could look today in three blocks, your journalism, your prime ministerial speech writing, and then your writing with Melbourne University Press, that would be great. That sound all right with you, David? Oh, it sounds fantastic. I'm following your lead. You're okay, and well, we, uh, because David and I are both here, we're going to catch James in a crossfire. So, no, it's... <laughs> let's, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's punch drunk yeah, already. Right. He's worked in politics. So I have eyes in the back of my head. Okay. <laughs> Well, now, in Speechless, you say that you're of the Tom Wolfe School of Journalism. Now, Tom Wolfe, of course, a lot of people will associate with gonzo journalism and the new journalism. And when you say gonzo journalism, a lot of people think, well, hang on, that doesn't sound too serious. One of your pieces, 1992, on the Australian uh, paper and pulp mills dispute in Burnie, won not just a Walkley, but a gold Walkley. Uh, if people listening are thinking, well, is gonzo journalism some way of just making light of a subject, could you tell us how you applied Tom Wolfe's ideas to reporting on that dispute, APPM? That's a great question, Ewan. I, look, in terms of the book, the Tom Wolfe quote is something he said where he said, the task for the journalist is to stay there at the scene as long as you can, and then when you completely sick of the story, you think you've got everything, stay one more day. Okay. And, and, and the reason for that is to get, you know, just like the, the detail. And I think what I was trying to say in there was that I worked as a journalist on detail. I'm not very good at making kind of sweeping statements out of nothing. I need to talk to a lot of people sure. and to try and get the story deeply inside me before I can actually fit, speak confidently about it. That sounds a little bit like method acting in a way. Were you thinking that then? Because you've got well, an acting me- background. Method acting, but here's a problem I see coming up today. Uh, do journalists have that 
time now to do such reporting. Yeah, they don't, David. It's really sad, you know. And uh, a lot of journalists complain that they're just they're doing deadlines all day because now with online, if you're a print journalist, you're filing for the newspaper in the morning, but then there might be three deadlines, rolling deadlines during the day, and of course, newspapers in particular are. Out of dough, and <laughs> and so they can't fund the sort of work. And you know, I mean, you've got the New York Times and the Guardian to some extent, although the Guardian is financially challenged. Uh, some two or three newspapers that are probably as good as they've ever been in this moment, and are still funding quality journalism. But all around the world, you know, in newspapers in other places are falling away. But the implications of that. Yeah, they're huge, and we're still. I think we're still living through those uh, implications. I think one of them is that a newspaper that I work for, like The Age, did reflect different points of view in a very broad sense, and I just don't see that. I, I, I see what's happening is kind of, you know, the left's going left and the right's going right, and, you, and that kind of middle ground, where often the truth lies in things, uh, gets uh, completely well, that was neglected. A good, that was a good point in your book that you said as a journalist... It took you quite a while to get journalism's core beliefs deep into your bones. I think that was a term of phrase. But at the end, you found that above all, truth matters. Now, you wrote that uh, prior to publication in 2012. How did you feel, talking about truth matters, how did you feel with uh, what happened just over a year ago? In fact, it's almost a year ago, it'll be the 21st of January, that Trump was inaugurated. Yeah, right. So, so there's an example of what we're talking about, right? Trump, I mean, Trump, let's hope, is an outlier that won't be repeated at any time. But he, he feels uh, empowered to tell lies without any fear of consequences because and and that's to a degree a function of the division that i'm talking about uh, which is partly uh partly you know that division is partly um one reflection of it is the absence of those kind of media that can cover you know many different different views um so trump is speaking to his base the base no longer trusts. You have this such a division in the United States where the where the you know the red side, the Republican side, and the blue side, the Democratic side, just don't. You know they're they're completely different um, yeah. universes, right? So yeah. Trump can say whatever he likes, and his base will go, yeah, he's right because we know the other lot are a bunch of liars. You know, well, that's that's a frightening and, world we're entering. And time know? summed up well by saying the divided states of America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but can we take it back a step then? Because you became a speechwriter for a politician, <laughs> I did. so all the politicians aren't necessarily <laughs> on the grand scale of Trump. No, but were you having to perhaps? massage the truth then for uh, to, to be a good speechwriter for a politician? Well, David, you've read my book. You, you will have seen that my attempt to write anything for Kevin Rudd was pretty much cut, nipped in the bud very early on. So the, I didn't even get to the massaging for, you know, um, state with, with, uh, with Kevin, mainly because you know, he would sit up at, at night in the lodge till three o'clock, taking your speech and completely rewriting it yeah. top to bottom, but maybe leaving in just one little line from your, from your speech to let you know that he actually he did, did read, read it. it. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I don't think... I think I did do any massaging, but of course that's a cas- that's a, a risk of the trade. But there's also that that change from a, being a journalist, and as you say, as you and us pointed out, it was in your bones. The whole 
system changes and approach changes when Absolutely. you become a speechwriter. I can't. I, we could talk about this for three hours, you know. And and you, so here's a few things. Journalists, uh, your name's on it. Uh, so you want to get it right because um, people say you wrote this, and you know. Therefore, you're you're responsible for this. In government, you're in this vast machine and you can hide in there, right? And, of course, governments have agendas and uh, they tend to like their version of the truth rather than the other version of the truth. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, within that, there are really ethical people who who basically make the trade-offs, not, not trade-offs with truth, but trade-offs with priorities. And, and so I, it's just a... What fascinated me about going inside government for the short time that I did, a year and a half, is it's a whole different view of the world from journalism. And, and I say it's like the journalist is the outsider looking on, you know, not outsider in institutional sense. They're, they're insiders in the system, but they're outsiders in terms of the, of the issue, whereas government's inside trying to, you know, trying to bend it to its way. You know? And, and of course, that paint- can be done cynically or it can be done with, yeah. with uh, integrity. I think you painted a very good picture of the public service, actually, and the dedicated professionals that are in there that a lot of people don't know about or just categorise as bureaucrats. And that's a great insight that your book provides. In terms of the approaches to writing, I was really interested that you read Ronald Reagan's speechwriter, her book, uh, well, Peggy Noonan is the author. She was one of the speechwriters for Reagan. And in talking about truth, uh, just a segue, one of Peggy Noonan's main contentions is that facts and logic are behind a great speech because a lot of people think, well, what about an aphora, uh, you know, a, a rhetorical device that Churchill had used, like, you know, we fight in the beaches and fight in the supermarkets, that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, no, we, we've got to get the facts and the logic right and yeah. then the icing on the cake is the yeah. rhetoric. Yeah. That was all part of your learning process. How did you cope with learning all that so quickly with Kevin Rudd breathing down your neck? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a good friend in... Kevin Rudd's office, a guy called Tim D- Tim Dixon, who wrote speeches for Rudd, and Tim was a great uh, mentor to me, and he lent me the Peggy Noonan book. Uh-huh. Uh, the Peggy Noonan book is a hundred pages. Uh, it's very funny. Um, it's very it's it's wise in lots of yeah. interesting ways. For example, she says in there, when you're making a speech, don't be perfect. A bit of nerves, a bit of hesitation, some stumbling is actually really endearing to the audience because it's hard enough for them that they're down there in the seats while you're up there on the stage. So it's a humanising factor. It's a humanising yeah. factor, you yeah. know. And uh, it's interesting that when Roosevelt gave a speech, Frank FDR, he always started with the words, my friends. Yeah. And the, yeah. the, the, the trick to a great speech is to establish the rapport with the audience yeah. in the room. Um, and, you know, to, to actually not be the, you know, the person up there who's not connecting. Right? Yeah. You've actually got to establish that rapport. So, um, look, I found it an incredibly steep learning curve but getting into government. But as I said, it was just that, that crossing that line was so fascinating that I was just every day I was trying to kind of learn new things. Yeah. Well, one of the first reactions you had when you were privy to some of that high-level information in the department was I, th- I think you wrote something about you wanted to jump over a few bodies bring and an bring your mates at, the, yeah, at Fairfax. Right. Oh, well, have yeah. I got a scoop for you? Yeah, that's right. So you had to restrain yeah. yourself in yeah. that regard. Well, one of, the things in, I think one of the things in life in general is what is secret and what can be told, yeah. you know? And this is a huge issue for writers. And I think it's a huge issue for every person. Like you're walking, you're talking to a friend and you say, can I tell them that, you know, this other friend told me this. You know, all through our days we're thinking, 
what do I keep to myself and what, what can I say? That is acute sure. in government and to a degree in journalism too. But here's the other element here, your discretion in terms of what you reveal in the book or what you are allowed to reveal, having been a speechwriter, what element of the intricacies of government and even personalities are you allowed to reveal? Yeah, and I, uh, again, <laughs> we, got, we got four hours. <laughs> uh, I, look, I had been uh, a public servant in that time. I was, uh, yeah, I was hired to, no, nobody thought, when I was hired that I was going to write a book. I didn't think that myself. Yeah, sure. So there were some things I felt I couldn't put in the book. Yeah. I, I felt it would have been a breach of what I, um, <clears throat> not explicitly, but had implicitly signed up to. Uh, even that said, that um, there were figures in the public service who strongly opposed my publishing the book. I I was told by various people that I, what I'd done was unethical. And then there were other people in the public service who completely disagreed with that and said that well, I, I didn't that, breach I'm, any... I'm glad there was I, that division. Because oh, I, there was a, there was yeah, a really yeah. interesting division. Um, well, there wasn't on, unanimous on saying, oh, you know, you've broken the code type thing. Yeah, some people said that. You've broken yeah. the code. You know, yeah. you, you should never have uh, said you've, you've broken the code. Uh, there are other people, um, including Peter Shergold, who's a former head of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, who wrote a review of the book, and he said... There's no, there's no breach of the code well, here. For, for me, it was just understanding the processes of government that we can hardly ever... That's what I was trying to explain, yeah. illuminate that. Yeah. But how do speechwriters get on in terms of when... I mean, the argument came up with uh, Don Watson and, and Paul Keating about the Redfern speech right. and who was responsible for those ideas, let alone the expression. Mm. So how difficult is it for a speechwriter to say, well, hang on, that's me, it's not the politician? <laughs> But it goes to um, the, the politician is the person responsible for the words and the politician lives or dies by the words. In politics, you live or die by words, by what you say sure. and whether you then go on to honour what you've said. I will do this for you and three years later you can see if I have or not and you can re-elect me or you can boot me out. The argument about speech writing is that it's like a kind of brief from the public service or a form of advice that is given to the politician. Even if the words are not his or hers, the, the, um, uh, you know, the, um, the message is, is owned by the politician. That said, you know, Don Watson um, played a really important role in writing that speech and in writing for Keating in general. Uh, they had a kind of fabulous chemistry when it worked and uh, great things came out of that. Sure. Great language and we're all the better for it, all of us. And Don wrote an amazing book about his time and we're all the better for that. And I think, um, but, you know, it goes to this thing, you know, but who owns the story? Keating said, it's my story. You know, I, I, I was the one on the high wire out there doing this, you know. Fascinating. Um, Fascinating and, and sad conflict, really, because they, as I said, when they got on, they really, they really did some great stuff. Well, let's dig a bit deeper on that term narrative, and I'm just going to say it's quarter to 12 now, and David McLean and myself, you and Mitchell, we're talking with James Button about his book, Speechless. So narrative, another thing that comes across very clearly in Speechless is the government needs to get a narrative out there, and we're so often bombarded by three-word slogans, jobs and growth, stop the boats, no carbon tax. How do you approach doing that? And 
is it possible that a narrative will connect with people now? It's harder than ever. There's no doubt it's harder than ever, because, in part because uh, the people, the community, are so much more diverse than they were once. You know, there was a, you go back 50 or 60 years, that when the ABC was speaking to the people, it had a sense of who those people were. Yeah. And we've become just so much more heterogeneous since then. Uh, so it is harder but it still can be done and, it, and governments have to try. And, uh, you know, for God's sake, we're all people and there are, you know, there are definite, um, uh, there are things that need doing, big things that need doing, right. and uh, they're not getting done. Uh, so so I, think, uh, I think governments have to continue to, it, you know, Hawke once said, Bob Hawke once said, he was asked, what is politics? And he said a really interesting thing. He said, politics is communicating and persuading other people to your point of view. Yeah. That's all he said. You know? it's, so it's a story it, yeah. it's at heart. You know, I'm going to tell you a story here of what I'm going to do, yeah. and then you can decide if I got it right. But the nature of the word narrative has changed. The political narrative, I understand a narrative to be an extended story. We're not getting the extended story We're anymore. Not. We're not, David. That's right. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, Twitter, social media, it's probably got a bit to do with it. Um, people are still trying to find that extended story. Um, if you look at someone like Obama, for example. Now, let's just look at his economic policies. Obama was brilliant at writing speeches and giving doorstop interviews that condensed a very complex economic story into simple language that was not simplistic. So it can be done. Um, Keating, Paul Keating, absolutely brilliant at finding that that phrase that would capture a really complex area in just you know in banana republic banana republic <laughs> well we, we, but banana republic was an incredibly important phrase at the time because it actually galvanized this sense that we have a crisis here and we you know in the end it was really transformative that phrase it got people uh, up and going you know and so i you know i think keating is the great Really interesting with Keating. He's the great, one of the great words people of politics. But he could only really do it at his best when he was under attack. You know, he yeah. loved the fight. He was so he was, combative. He, he was so combative, such a warrior. You know, if you give Paul a speech, um, you know, he was okay. But he would read it, you know, in a fairly sort of ordinary way. But when he was in, you know, Parliament or on a doorstop when the journalists were coming at him or, you know, when, when Houston said, you know, why don't you call an election? He says... Because, pal, I want to do you slowly. <laughs> and, you know, just across the floor. You know, apparently at the end of that, he yeah. walked out of the chamber and put his arm around Houston and he said, mate, it's only a game. <laughs> oh, yeah. Talk about so, crossfires. That's, yeah. that's, that's the legend anyway. Well, so we've got the idea of stories being important, still being important, and if you're a master speechmaker like Obama, you can still do that. But what you found with Kevin Rudd, that he was a list maker. He was. And that's all very well if you're listing, okay, we said we were going to achieve this and we did, but is it going to capture, yeah, are we going to capture hearts and minds? Now, to complicate that, he had a three-point plan to writing that he expanded into a seven-point plan. Could you give us a bit of an insight of what you walked into with the lists, the three-point plan? And now, James, I'm just going to tell you about the seven-point plan. Well, his three-point plan is really good. And, And I heard that on the first day I was in the job. And it basically goes... This is what any speech or indeed any piece of writing should really achieve. Where are we now? Where do we want to go? 
and how are we going to get there? Yeah. I actually think that's a brilliant structure yeah. and I use it all the time when I'm doing all kinds of writing in my current job, organizing documents. You know, it's just a terrific way to think about a piece of writing um, because the where are we now is the kind of the, you know, as they say the, in the cliche, the burning platform. Yeah. You know, what are, what are we going to do here to get out of that? And I thought, great, three-point plan. And then I went to a meeting, had a one-on-one, my, my only one-on-one meeting with him ever was at the Lodge. And in typical Kevin fashion, he turned his three-point plan into a seven-point plan. <laughs> and you, you reminded me of this today, and I had to go back and read it. But it, it's, uh, gee, I, I can't. But it was basically, he, he was always drilling down into the detail of things. And his speeches were full of detail, full of numbers, um, and you would lose people because they would a, go on a very long time. So an audience, he'd often start well, make some jokes, people would be receptive, enjoying themselves, and he could have just stopped and said, you've been a great audience, thank you, and sat down. But he would go on for 50 minutes, and by the end, with all this detail, and by the end, people would often be quite angry. And uh, I think the detail was his way of armouring himself um, against attack, and the detail ended up having the detail obsession ended up having catastrophic consequences because he couldn't make decisions i mean it's all very well in a speech okay so he wrote some he gave some long-winded and dull speeches but but in terms of actual making decisions around climate change around a whole bunch of key things he could he would just ask for one more bit of detail and evidence and the decision would not get made well that was something very surprising me reading in the book that when the public service had uh, work that the Prime Minister needed to do. They would often wait until Kevin got on his famous 747, went overseas, and caretaker Prime Minister Gillard would come in and very quickly make all those decisions. What was it like having uh, that sort of dual control? I mean, he must have been out of the country a lot. Uh, well, he was. He was always flying around, and sometimes he would actually fly to, say, Peru, and yeah. then he decided that he wanted to talk about some domestic issue like a tax policy, and he would... He would ring his advisor in, in Australia and say, come to Peru now. Oh. And then the advisor would get to Peru and then Kevin would have lost interest in that <laughs> issue and the advisor would fly home. This happened to ministers as well. So um, I'm not close enough to, to uh, you know, I was in, uh, I was at some remove from his office. I was in his department that's um, further away. So I can't tell you exactly what the change was like from Rudd to Gillard in those periods. But Julia was a very, very good um, organiser of her time, right. a very good uh, a negotiator, very respectful, um, very good manager of people. Um, you know, and you, you, you talk to someone like Tony Windsor, you know, the MP, he was a big fan of hers, you know, said she was, in a way, um, you know, I think the closer you got to Kevin, the more difficult and um, sort of impossible he, be, he became, whereas the closer you got to Julia, the more people liked her because she, she was just so so good at negotiating. And, and you look at her record, she got a lot of really important things done. Yeah. Um, some things didn't work out, but she... Uh, you know, I think there's some, some stuff in there to be, that, that she can be proud of. Well, that's a good point, actually, a good summary point to move on from in the time we've got left. We've got uh, just a few minutes re- remaining. But talking about your career now, so... In 2012, Speechless came out. It marked your debut as a uh, an author of books, and you've since followed that up with another book about one of the subjects close to your heart all your life, the Geelong Football Club. But how do you find that? That's a huge responsibility. You've got all this experience. You've got a publisher saying, well, we want to condense it into, I, I don't know, 80,000 words. 
Uh, how do you go about approaching that mass of detail? Mm, I, I, I definitely override in terms of length, and I've always desperately scrambling to fill the thing down at the end. Uh, it's just a it's a real kind of tick that I need to get over. But it, it comes back to feeling what I said at the start, I need to research things really thoroughly. Yeah. So with the Geelong book, which was a great labour of love, I, I, I could have written it again, put in a whole bunch of different anecdotes, <laughs> and it would have, I've still got to 100,000 words. But th- there are three distinct areas then. How do you cope as a writer adapting journalism, speech writing, and then a sort of general public? Each require a different sort of perspective. They do, David, but the trick is to get to the point, I guess, and to use stories, anecdotes and things you've seen to flesh out the kind of points you want to make. I I sometimes think a really good um, piece of writing in the in the non-fiction sense, I'm not talking about fiction writing, but you know, or a, a speech or something, it'll have it'll have um, stories in it. Yep. It'll have statistics, which will say, you know, the, the stories are not just stories there uh, without any... You, you use the stories because they illustrate a larger trend, you know. Um, and, then, and, then, and then you use those to make statements about what, what's going on. So, but, you, so you want to go from the low, low level up to the high level where you can not just tell the... De- the detail is wonderful and rich, but then you've got to pull up to the high and say, this is what's going on at a, at a, in a larger sense. But you don't have your own seven-point plan for all-purpose <laughs> I probably have a 48-point plan. <laughs> okay. Well, one of the credits at the end, uh, Louise Adley, you say that she's able to really uh, zone in or zoom in on what you need to do. She's now, terrific, how, Louise. I was yeah. about to say, yeah. how how helpful is she? She's just a great editor. For a start, she's um, very enthusiastic and em- empathetic, so she gets into your headspace and, and wants to know what you're thinking. And uh, she has zero interest in football, but she really, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she she really, you know, she want to write football. Great, let's 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 yeah, go. You know, terrific. let's do it. So, yeah. um, uh, she, I've really valued working with her. She's also. Um, She's good at pushing you. She says, I think you go harder on this. And, um, uh, yeah, she's – and, you know, you look at her record at MUP. She has, um, you know, she has produced – she's prolific in books on politics in Australia. And, and, and uh, you know, some of those books have really made a difference in terms of her understanding. I think sure. she's really mm-hmm. intent on explaining how politics works yeah. to people who are not part of it. And that's a great thing for the, for the culture. Uh, I think on that note, that's a good note to wind up on that. You are very good at explaining politics too. And uh, in this age of cynicism towards democracy, I actually had a little survey here that uh, with some stats on that, but we've run out of time for that. Um, thank you very much for joining us today, James. Thanks, you, and I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, David. Pleasure. And, and David, now David and Jan will be back yes, next indeed. week in full flight. The, the old gang is back together yeah, so. again. Please join us again next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.